On the Nonlinear Healing Podcast, we talk about all the aspects of healing. The beautiful parts and the painful parts, too. We acknowledge that healing is not linear, and there are many ups and downs in every person's story. And in fact, we celebrate the messy parts just as much as the pretty parts. This is Nonlinear Healing with Courtney Brooke. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Nonlinear Healing Podcast. I'm your host, Courtney Brooke. Welcome to this week's episode of Nonlinear Healing with Courtney Brooke. I am so super excited to have you all listen to my interview with Elena Brakeiron, the owner and operator of Serenity Hill Counseling and Wellness, where I do private practice work. But before we get started, just a couple of quick announcements. Exhale, a community support group that I run out of the Westmoreland County, is going to be meeting at the space today on November the 14th at 6.30. Come one, come all. Um, We will be starting with some open discussion, of course, followed by a practice of some sort, probably some sort of guided meditation or breath work along those lines. We are also going to be at Serenity Hill next Monday, November the 21st, if you'd like to join us there. And we are also going to be having a virtual option this month on the 22nd at 6.30 as well. And I will be posting the link below. Join us if you can. We would be so grateful to have you. It's been such a blessing to myself and those who are involved. We always have fun together. We always have somebody who cries. So don't feel intimidated. It is such a welcoming and caring and supportive environment, and we would be so grateful to have you join us. So this week on the Nonlinear Healing Pod, I am interviewing Elena Brakeiron, who is the owner and operator of Serenity Hill Counseling and Wellness, an integrative practice in the Connellsville area, where their focus is on the mind, body, and spirit approach to treatment. Um, Elena is a licensed professional counselor as well as a clinically certified trauma professional. She shares with us her story of nonlinear healing in living with and managing an extended period of time of addiction. She also shares with us how these events have transpired and led her to what has become one of the greatest creation she's had and how a lot of the experiences that she's had has shaped her to be the person that she is today and to be the leader in her community and she has brought wellness to Connellsville in a different way than I think um, it has seen before in the past and I am so honored to be part of the team at Serenity Hill doing the work that we do And Alina and sharing her journey has only made me feel even more proud to be part of the team there. So without further ado, I would love to share with you Alina Brakeiron's story of nonlinear healing. Hello, Alina, and welcome to the Nonlinear Healing Podcast. Hi, Courtney. I am so grateful to have you on today to tell us a little bit more about your journey 
because I work with you and I know bits and pieces of it, but I am so super excited to learn more about how life has guided you to the place that you're at today, running the incredible um, wellness and, you know, mental health facility that you do. So why don't you take us all the way back to start? Maybe set the stage here a little bit. Tell us about where you were born, about when you were born, that sort of stuff. Sure. Um, So yeah, I was actually born in Maryland, um, near the Frostburg, Cumberland area. And I was born in Maryland because my grandmother managed and owned a family restaurant down in that area. So um, at the time, Uh, It was my grandmother, my mother, and me. We were living in Frostburg, Cumberland um, in Maryland. So, but my family is actually originally from Dunbar, Pennsylvania. We were living in Maryland for about, um, I want to say five or six years before we decided to move back to Dunbar. Um, But I'll be honest, I don't even really remember much about Maryland, except for we spent a lot of time at the restaurant. I do remember the blizzard of 94. um, And my aunt, who is uh, my Graham's other daughter, she also decided to um, move to Maryland and she stayed down there throughout the majority of my lifetime. So every summer we would actually go and visit her for a couple weeks at a time. And so even though we moved back to Pennsylvania, we still, um, would travel back and forth between PA and Maryland to visit with her. So yeah. Um, so a lot of female energy. You had a lot of women in your life. Some of them entrepreneurial. Sounds like. Yes. Uh, yeah, it's funny you say that because, um, I had like wrote down that my family. So when I say family, I am referring to like my mother, my grandmother and my aunt. Like when I was younger, that was who my nuclear family was. So my family, I describe them as very strong, independent women. Um, Yes, lots of female energy in my family. So you had your nuclear family, these women guiding you, and you decided, you guys all decided to come back to the Dunbar area when you were what, maybe like five or six years old, you said? Yeah, I remember I was um, just entering first grade. So yeah, like Maryland, it's a little bit of a distant memory, but yet I still have memories of spending time with my aunt who decided to remain down there. Um, And we would visit with her frequently. But yeah, so me, my gram, my mother, and then I also have a younger brother. And we moved back to Pennsylvania to Dunbar when I was entering first grade. And my Graham, she's just this amazing person. Um, 
she was divorced when my mother was just young. So my grandma was divorced, but she never remarried. So the, like my memories of my grandma, I just remember this strong, independent woman who was like the breadwinner of our family. She was our rock. She was like the main provider, a very hard worker, very generous and giving. Um, but also she was a little hardened also since she was kind of like, like I said, the rock of our family. So a lot of that pressure landed on her to take care of the family. So we're talking a very hardened and stubborn person, um, but yet generous. So she kind of like had two sides to her. Um, and then my mother very much takes after my grandmother, who is also a hard worker. Um, funny enough, she's never been married either. So both major female figures in my life were never married. And both of them also have higher educations. They hold leadership positions in their careers. Both are very stubborn, willful. Um, I don't know if, you know, they just, they don't take crap from people. Um, but both also have very addictive tendencies, which later on in my journey, that will come into play when we, you know, talk a little bit more about addiction. But my Graham, um, she ended up passing away from COPD and emphysema. She was a very heavy smoker um, throughout almost her whole entire life. My mother is also a smoker, but when she was younger, she also struggled heavily with alcohol and other substances. And then um, my dad, who I haven't really mentioned yet, my dad, he is really non-existent to be honest. There's not much to say there. He has never really been a major part of my life. He's been absent for most of it. Um, he also suffers from addictive tendencies with alcohol. And I always say my dad, the only thing he really gave me in life was a lifetime's worth of struggle regarding men and relationships. That's about the most he has ever done for me. <laughs> mm. Yeah. So dad, never took initiative, not really involved in your life. You have these two very strong independent women who are modeling this, you know, go get it, you know, ambition in the career. They have these advanced degrees, but also, I mean, you know, as well as I do that, that kind of comes with a price at times when it comes to stress. And like many people who don't know what to do with stress, you know, people turn to alcohol and drugs and other ways of coping and dealing with that. And yeah. Yes. And that really plays a role and it had a huge impact on me growing up because like during my childhood, while I can remember, like there were fun times. I remember, you know, going and visiting my aunt in Maryland where we went camping all the time. We went fishing. We were always out in the woods. Like we were very rarely were we indoors. We were all always back in the mountains and, you know, spending time in nature. Um, 
also during my childhood, I remember a lot of time spent with my gram. Um, I feel like I was like her little shadow a lot of the times where I would follow her around. Uh, she would take me, um, she held a couple different jobs. So I remember going with her um, at different, you know, at her different jobs and she would take me with her. We would go shopping a lot. Um, we were always visiting different people also, different family members and friends. So there's happy moments. I had happy, I had a happy childhood, but I feel like there was like a little bit of a shadow cast over it too, though, because my mom, she was always working. My mom was a single mom. So she was always working. Um, and I think at the time when I was younger, she just was in this place where she was doing her own thing. She was in her early twenties. So I'm not quite sure if she was ready to be like a full on parent. So I feel like I was thrown around a lot between Graham, my aunt, other family members. Um, dad was never there, he was absent. So I had to grow up very quickly. I had to learn at a very young age what it meant to be independent. Um, I took care of myself a lot. Um, I also helped take care of my brother. He's five years younger than I am. So there was, you know, some responsibilities put on me in that aspect. And I remember my childhood just being very lonely. Um, I didn't really have a sense of belonging because I was always being thrown around everywhere. Um, and because my mom, you mentioned the stress of being a single parent and being hardworking. So a lot of that stress that my mom was feeling, um, I don't think she really knew how to regulate her emotions. So a lot of that got put on me. Um, she took a lot of her emotional turmoil and it just, it really got put on me. I took the brunt of that. So I don't know. It just created a lot of fear. Um, I learned to shove my emotions down at a very young age and I wasn't allowed to cry. If I cried, it was almost kind of like a trigger for my mom. And I was always told, you know, stop crying or you know, um, there, what are you crying for? There's nothing to cry about. Or I also heard a lot, um, keep crying and I'll give you something to cry about. So mm -hmm. I was taught not to cry. I was taught, you know, you had to be a good girl all the time. Um, if I got bad grades, I got punished. I can't rely on other people because being raised by these strong women, I was taught not to rely on men. Um, and another part was my gram, she worked night shift. So during the day, I was always told, Shh, you know, Graham's sleeping, you can't play real loud. So I guess in saying that, I guess I was muted a lot as a child. I didn't really have um, much of a voice. Yeah. And I can definitely see where you're coming from when you're like, but I had a happy childhood because I'm seeing, you know, there is this love and you are enveloped. Like there is family there, right? Even if mom can't maybe 
handle being a full-time parent, can't handle the emotions and all of that. Like you have Graham, you have your aunt, you have people who care and love you, but at the same time, you know, a lot of times we just want to be seen and heard by like mom, right? Like we want that. Um, and I, I don't, I think that it, it can be this dual thing too, where it's like, I both had a happy childhood and also maybe carry some shadows or some baggage around some of it as well. You know what I mean? Yes. And it, and it feels like that, like anytime I'm asked to like share about my childhood or share about my life, it does get confusing because I'm like, you know, on one hand I was loved and I was loved by, you know, a lot of people, but on another hand, was I loved by the people that I needed it from? What I needed was my father. What I needed was my mother. So those two nuclear people were absent. And so it, it's like, yeah, dull feelings where I felt loved and happy. But on another hand, I was also lonely and like longing for something that I didn't even quite understand back then. Um, and it did, it led to like, as I was growing up, so now like we're kind of fast forwarding into my teenage and adolescence, it just led to a lot of immense pressure, you know, to be a good girl, get good grades, but yet you don't have a voice. You don't feel the love that you need the most. And I just remember, and it really does bring, when I talk about my childhood, my voice gets shaky because it brings these emotions to the surface that I'm still learning to feel and, and to process. But. I and I think that's a continuous journey though. Like I definitely have been in positions where like, I can look at a situation and relive it in my mind and say, I both have healed and am still healing from right like maybe like some aspects are a little more emotionally like I can handle it but there's always going to be like I'd be more concerned if you revisit this and you feel nothing right it's right. like you're supposed right. to feel something when you're talking about these things and I, I think that's beautiful and healthy too Yes. So you will like, you'll hear the changes in my voice where like when I'm talking about my childhood, like it feels very shaky, but then once I get into my addiction and recovery, I feel like I can already feel the shift where I will feel more confident and even toned because like my childhood, it is shaky. I was very much on shaky ground. And I remember like, because I wasn't allowed to cry a lot in front of other people because I'd get yelled at for it. But I remember crying at night um, when I was by myself. And I just remember, even as a child, as a teenager, just constantly like longing for adulthood, like counting down the days until I was 18, because in my mind, when I turned 18, all these problems would go away and I will feel confident and I will feel, I'll be able to do what I want without getting yelled at. Um, 
is how that felt. And again, like, it's like, I had a lot of friends too. Like growing up, it, like I felt lonely and I felt like I didn't belong, but yet I had friends and I actually started playing soccer when I, oh, I want to say I was like in third or fourth grade when I started. And that was a great emotional outlet for me. I loved soccer. And I think it's because like, I felt like I was part of something. I was part of a team. I had a lot of friends and those friends, there was actually a core group of girls where we played together for like nine years. We kind of like went up through the grades in junior high and high school together. So I think that, you know, was able to provide me some stability, but on another level, you still had this family stuff going on in the background. Um, and I can remember, I spent a lot of time with my friends, like going back and forth uh, to their houses for games and practices. And because my mom was a single mom, Graham worked night shift. Um, my mom depended on a couple of the girls' families to help get me back and forth to practices and games. So it was a little bit of a village, but I remember spending a lot of time with these other families. And the one thought that would constantly go through my head was, why isn't my family like this? Why don't I have a mom? a dad? Why don't we look happy and eat dinner together? Like, why doesn't my family look like that? <laughs> Ugh. And I yeah. just want to like pause there for a second because, you know, it's, it's different, right? Your nuclear family looked a lot different and you, you used the word village. You said that it was a village. Yes. And I think sometimes it is like, it can be both. Like it can be like, yes, I wish that it was this way. And also, is it fair that that's the only thing is that, is it really fair that that's the standard also, right? Like my sister is a single mother. She has her two children. She was a teenage mother. And, you know, I, I saw how challenging that is and it does take a village, right? Like it does take and I, I think that it can be beautiful in itself in a way too, to be able to see that like, wow, there are these other people that for circumstances, whether they are in people's control or out of people's control, where parents can't be involved or they choose not to be involved, that it's still beautiful when that village steps in and does that. You know what I mean? It is. And, you know, it's funny you say that because I can understand that now as an adult, but when you're a teenager or a child, and if your family doesn't take the time, or if they're not aware, sometimes they might not even be aware, but if your family doesn't take the time to explain some of these more advanced concepts to you, it just left me feeling very lonely. So as a child, I, I didn't have an understanding of societal expectations. I didn't have an understanding of what it meant to have a village of, of you know, I didn't realize that you could have different blended families. As a child, that was never explained to me. I didn't learn that until I was older. So it just left me feeling very envious and lonely and different. Um, and 
I guess this, this leads me into another like kind of major life event that happened to me that left a huge lasting impact. And that was when I was, um, I was probably about 10 or 11 years old. And my mother, um, she met my first stepfather. So, you know, this new person came into our lives and he was great. Like, it was like, I finally had my family. I finally have a dad. He was very attentive and caring and loving. Um, and it was like, as a child, I'm like, yes, finally, like my family looks like other people's families and I feel loved. But then he, so they were supposed to get married. They were engaged and planning a wedding. And um, I remember I was supposed to be a junior bridesmaid. And so we're like getting ready for this wedding. And wow. Okay. So I haven't talked about this in a while. So I just feel all these emotions coming to the surface, but that's okay. We can pause too. We can. Yeah. Yeah. It's tough. It is. It is. There's, there's a lot that I feel comes to the surface when you speak this out loud and it can be a very emotional thing. And I think that can also be so beautiful. And I hope that, you know, when people hear the story, they hear that in you. And I think that's genuine and reflects authenticity. Um, I know one huge part of my recovery has been learning to like work through my emotions, utilizing like deep breathing and uh, mindfulness. So just being able to breathe deeply in and exhale to just help regulate that body has been extremely helpful. So yeah. Um, so my stepfather, he, um, he ended up passing away, uh, two days before their, before their wedding. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And that was just really, it was really, really hard on my family as a whole. Well, here you are, you know, you're in that moment of it's finally happening. It's happening. It's the thing that I wanted. It's going to happen. And then that loss, I can only imagine how devastating that would feel. Yeah, it was. You know, and just, it was devastating for just so many reasons. Um, I think that was the first major loss I've ever experienced in my lifetime. And it was, it was like the rug was just like pulled right out from underneath you, you know? So... But 
And, you know, of course, in that moment, how old were you? I was 11. And you're 11 years old mm-hmm. in a house that tells you it's not okay to cry. And that you, I mean, I can see where that could be headed a little bit. Yeah, it's, I can even like, I can even remember my mom saying, this was a couple years later, I can remember my mom saying, I probably should put you and your brother in counseling, but then it was like a dot, dot, dot. <laughs> it, it, like, it was like, we recognized that was, that could have been a good thing or like a beneficial thing, but then it was like, it was never followed through with. Um, and I feel like that's how mental health was back then. You know, it, it wasn't, there was still that stigma. Um, it still wasn't like a big option. You know, it was just kind of like an afterthought, like, oh yeah, this could be helpful, but because we're so busy, we never really followed through with it. So, um, yeah, so that event happened and it was a huge blow to my family in so many different ways but I remember a couple months later I I feel like it was a couple months later but it could have been it could have been a year later that time back then kind of um I don't know I feel like the time gets warped but it was like a couple months later a year later um my family threw a party and I don't even remember the occasion. It was just a party. And it was my mom and a couple of our um, like extended cousins who I like, they're older than me, but I grew up, we all grew up around each other. My grandmother was one of 11 and they're all from the Dunbar area. So there's like two of my grand siblings were very like all of our families are very close so it was my mom a couple of my extended cousins there was a bunch of people but I can remember that there was alcohol there so it was like the adults were you know drinking and having a good time and then there was us kids kind of running around in the background but that was very normal for my family so any like major family function whether it was a birthday party christmas new year we used to throw these massive parties and there was always alcohol there i mean the majority of my <laughs> i don't want to say the majority but we'll say a good portion of my family Um, do suffer from various addictions like alcohol and nicotine. But again, because those things are so socially acceptable, um, it was never really thought of as an issue. But I can remember at that party, there was alcohol there. And me and another one of my cousins, we snuck a bunch of wine coolers back to her bedroom and we drank them. And I can remember laying on her bed. I was laying on my back, looking up at the ceiling. And I just thought to myself, like, wow, this is effing amazing. Like, I feel so good right now. Um, And that was it for me. As soon as I discussed, and I was like, I was only 12. I was only 12 years Mm. old when that happened. And I can remember feeling- probably, yeah. And probably experiencing that feeling of relief for maybe the first time? Yes, yes, that's exactly what it was. 
And I don't know. I, I just feel like that was it. Like ever since that event, that party, um, I was like looking and finding any way I could to either sneak alcohol or, you know, I'd, I, I would ask my mom, mom, can I go with you to, you know, this party or that party? And because there were other kids there, she's like, yeah, sure. Come along, you know? And <laughs> I don't know. I just remember finding any way I could to get intoxicated because it felt good. I didn't have to feel that pain. I didn't have to feel that loneliness. I actually felt happy. Um, and did she ever catch on to what was happening here? Well, I think when I was younger, no, because it was kind of, you know, you gotta, you gotta think you're at a party. You're, there's a lot of people around, you know what I mean? So as the adults are doing their thing, the kids were doing their thing, running around, um, and honestly, I don't know, this might just be a Dunbar thing, but a lot of parties we had were also outside back in the mountains. We'd go quad riding. Um, that was a big part of our life too, where we would just, you know, pack a cooler full of drinks, alcohol, and food, and we'd go quad riding. So while the adults are doing their thing, us kids would go off somewhere else and yeah, um, I apologize if it sounds like this is really bad parenting. <laughs> Well, no, no. I mean, it sounds know. like it was very culturally acceptable. It, it, it really was. It truly, truly was. Um, but I do remember as I got older, so now we're moving into like 16, 17, 18. Um, obviously, she started catching me. I was sneaking out, hanging out with older people. Um, but these older people were also cousins, though. So it's like, you know, it'd be Friday night. I'd be like, hey, mom, I'm going to go with so-and-so. And she'd be like, okay, have fun, be safe, because they were family members. And so she's thinking we're just, you know, oh, we're going to go quad riding. We're going to go for a ride back the mountains. But what we're really doing is we're going to go get shit faced. And that's what we did. And Oh, she- I can relate to that. Yeah. <laughs> Right. So now we're to the point where I'm getting old enough to make my own decisions. She has less control over me. So, you know, she had two choices. Do I crack down on her and risk, you know, creating a further gap? Or do I go along with it and try to be her friend and try to guide her? You know, that's a really hard choice for a parent. And you know, she tried to do both. She tried to do both. But when she would try to crack down, I rebelled. When she tried to be my friend, I just drank more, you know, so she really was kind of in a hard place there as a mother. Um, But also, you got to remember, it stems from this feeling of not being loved. So I feel like, you know, if my mother ever hears this, you know, I don't mean to talk smack on her, but you should have done your parenting when I was younger. You know, you can't parent when I'm 16. You have to parent when I'm younger and you missed that chance. So now you created a monster. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. And I think it's so hard because I will also say like, I lived in a household where it was always very strict. And so then like, I kind of rebelled in the opposite way of like, I just started doing whatever the hell I wanted anyways. And I had a terrible relationship and it was very, very strained. And my mom and I couldn't get along until after I moved out of the house when I was 18. So I feel like, I mean, parenting an adolescent in general is difficult, right? Like it's, it's challenging. And, you know, to a certain point, like kids are going to do what they want to do. Um, it's just about how do we encourage them to want to do the right things, right? (laughs) Which is active parenting. You have to be present. Yes. Well, in my mother and yeah, so me and my mother didn't have the greatest relationship when I was in my teenage years either, because now you have this teenager who went from being lonely and sad to just pissed off. Like I was so angry back then at the world, at my mother, at my father, but I didn't know how to communicate it. I didn't know what to do with it. So I just continued drinking. Um, and now I'm this rebellious teenager And, and I I just feel like my mother didn't know what to do with me. So, you know, I do think she ensured I was as safe as I could be. So I can remember she would keep in contact with the people that I was with to make sure that I was okay. And anytime I wasn't, they did call her and she came, but yeah. So now, now we're getting up into high school and, you know, I did funny enough though, I did stick with soccer up until I was a senior in high school. And I felt like soccer did help control me in some sense, because I did take pride in that. So I did maintain the drinking to an extent. Like when I was playing soccer, I tried to lessen my intake in the off season. I did drink a little bit more, but when I turned 18 and graduated from high school and I no longer had that stability, now, I did go to college, um, but I don't know. I feel like I feel like school was just always something I knew I had to do because, you know, growing up, I was always taught you can't rely on other people. You have to be independent. So school just felt like a survival thing. Like I had to do that. But when I turned 18, the alcohol... Now that I knew I didn't have to worry about soccer, the alcohol turned to marijuana and then it progressed into prescription pain pills. And then eventually it progressed into cocaine. And that basically took over my life from the time I was 18 until I was 28. It was just a cloud of shit. (laughs) The best way I can say it. So you started when you were 18 with like alternative, it started off with marijuana, then pills, then cocaine. And so it started with college. Was that where you met the people who like influenced you to try it? Or was that stuff that was always available and you just decided to take the leap? It was the second option. So that's why I said like, it's, it's so weird because college Um, I actually did not meet a lot of people when I was in my undergrad. I went to Pitt at Greensburg and I ended up commuting back and forth between, you know, Dunbar and Greensburg to go to school. No, school more felt like a job. You know, that's kind of what that felt like. It was a job. I went and did it and I actually did really well. I graduated with a 3.9 
Um, don't know how I did that, to be honest, but I did. And I did really well in school, but it was like a job. Nah, the addiction took over the rest of my life. Like when I wasn't in school or if I wasn't working part-time, I was, I was, I was high like the whole entire time. And the people that I used with, um, no, they were more local. Like, you know, I don't want to, I, I met them when I graduated high school. Um, they were just like people that I would party with, like in, like in high school, they were people that I met just when we would party and, and do different things like that. But with my addiction, um, yeah, the best way I can even describe that time of my life was it's like a bullet list. It's bad and toxic relationships. I lost every positive peer and exchanged them for criminals, users, and drug dealers. Um, I ended up hopping from job to job so no one would notice. And if they did, I gaslit the hell out of them and pulled away. Um, I did experience a lot of death and loss from my friends overdosing and committing suicide. Um, and eventually I did also develop a physical dependence to the prescription pills. Um, and in the end, I did develop a physical dependence to the cocaine too, but that came a lot later in life. But yeah, my addiction, it was just a lot of trauma, a lot of uh, it was just a whirlwind of, I could sit here for hours and talk about it. So I figured it'd be easier just to give you a kind of a bullet. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I understand completely yeah. where you're coming from. And, and I think it's like, so for in my experience, I had first kind of come into the harder drugs, like later in high school mm -hmm. and, you know, they had kind of always been there and there were many people who used them casually, but not everybody had my history. Right? right. So when I started using it, it was like, I had that moment, like where you described when you're 12 years old, you're like, oh, relief, like finally. And you know, that, that feeling people, unless you, unless you have that experience, it's hard to understand that. Uh, you don't know what it's like to live in a literal hell in your mind at times. And then to find relief in this way, unless you have any other way of getting that like, man, that very quickly becomes your whole world. Yes. And I feel like with the addiction, I like the one word I can use to sum up why I did it and what it felt like. And that that's the word numb. It just totally 100% numbed me. And um, it felt good not to feel. It felt good not to feel. I didn't have to feel that loneliness anymore. I didn't have to feel the trauma, the abandonment, the unworthiness. I didn't have to feel unloved. I didn't have to feel anything. And I didn't. For 10 years, I felt nothing. Um, I feel like with the pills, I, I have two major substances that I ended up getting like physically and mentally addicted to. And that was the prescription pills and the cocaine, but they happened at two different parts in my life. The pills were, that, that kind of happened first. So we're talking like between 18 and 22-ish. 
Um, I mean, I was using cocaine here and there, but that was more like a fun thing. The pills at first, they gave me this numb, warm, fuzzy feeling. I'm like, oh, I like this. Like, because now I don't just feel numb, but I feel euphoric. But that was quickly followed by the physical dependence. So it went from this numb, warm, fuzzy feeling to, well, shit, now I need them to function. And I ended up, um, my recovery was triggered by my pregnancy. I ended up getting pregnant with my son when I was 21. And I had a really rough pregnancy because of the pills. And back then I wasn't as fully aware of treatment options like I am now. So um, I don't know, that was a really rough time. I don't like to talk about that time in my life because I'm not quite, I haven't really processed it fully yet. But long story short, it was just a rough pregnancy. And um, there was a lot of trauma associated with Aiden's birth. And in the end, it just, it, it's, it triggered me to seek recovery because now I'm not just responsible for me but now I'm responsible for this boy, this baby. And I refuse to raise Aiden the way that I was raised. So mm-hmm. I just thought to myself, you know, this is happening to you. It's happening for a reason. It is time to get your shit together so that you can provide this baby the best possible life that you can. So Aiden did trigger my recovery for the the prescription pills, but, um, I don't know, it was maybe a year or so after he was born. Um, I don't know. I guess that's when the cocaine started taking over. (laughs) So I kind of traded one for the other. Um, life just got hard. You know, I'm a single mom now working full-time going to school full-time and, the cocaine started out as, you know, I'm going to party on weekends when I don't have Aiden. Um, when he's with his dad, I would go and blow off steam and we would get, you know, like a half a gram or a gram just to party with. But then I started using it because I was tired. Um, back then I was working in a methadone clinic and I would work from 5 a.m. to 1 p.m. And then I was in my master's program at this time, and I would have to go to class from six to nine, I think it was 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. So I was going from Dunbar to Washington to the methadone clinic. So that's an hour drive. So, and that's at 5 a.m. So Dunbar to Washington, and then from Washington to Dunbar, and then Dunbar to Monroeville. Monroeville back to Dunbar all in one day. And I did that three days a week. Oh, so, that sounds exhausting. Oh, Courtney, you have no idea. You have no idea. It, it was, I, I did that for about a year and I will say that I was using cocaine and Adderall to help me stay awake. But in the end, I did end up actually wrecking my car um, because I was so tired. I ended up falling asleep on route 70. And, oh my goodness. Yeah. So that's so you're lucky to be alive because that's a very busy roadway. 
Oh yeah, it was it was terrifying. It was at five o'clock in the morning. I think that's what saved me. It was so early in the morning that there wasn't a lot of traffic. And I ended up hitting the barrier on my left side and it flung me up over a cliff on the right side. And I'm lucky I didn't, I almost tipped the car over, but I was able to turn the wheel quick enough to where I didn't flip it over. But that was when I was like, okay, time for a different job. You need to get a closer job to home. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I, I just feel like that's when the cocaine just kind of started taking over my life. Um, yeah. And like noting that again, in these situations, like there is always a function, there's always a reason. And like in this moment, it was being triggered because you were exhausted physically, mentally. And that was the, that was the thing. That was the first thing that you found that worked. Um, and like, obviously, you know, long-term usually doesn't work out very well, but you didn't know, like you, you live and you learn. And, and I, it's important to note that like, it always has a function. It always has a function. Yes. And that's kind of how it started for a couple years. You know, it, it was like that. I'd use it on the weekend to cut loose to whatever, whatever, have fun. And then during the week, I would use it sparingly to keep me awake so that I could function. But then, like you said, like you build a tolerance, you start to build this tolerance. And the more you use it, it it just keeps increasing. You know, it goes from two or three days a week to five days a week. And then eventually it did. I was using it every day. Um, it got, you know, I know some people will say, well, you can't get physically dependent on cocaine. Yes, you can, because I was, hold on, I'm sorry. Absolutely. Here. And, and I think that's not fair for people to speak to other people's experience. People will say things, they'll say many substances aren't technically physically dependent or whatever, but I don't believe that. No. And you know, at first I did though. I think that was kind of the appeal with cocaine though. Cause I thought in my head like, well, shit, I can, uh, I can quit this whenever I want. It doesn't have a hold on me. Like the pills did like opiates, but that in the end, it, it wasn't like that. In the end, I was physically, mentally, and emotionally dependent upon, upon that stimulant. Um, I was using it every day in the end. And in the end, I was, and and then like, so money, right? I'm a single mom working full time, put myself through school. Um, I don't have endless amounts of money. So I started relying on selling it. So here I am, I'm a therapist, like I'm a therapist, right? Therapist by day. But then in the end to support my cocaine habit, I started selling it. So therapist by day, drug dealer by night, like what is that? That's like the huge, like that's the biggest contradiction ever. So now you have this existential crisis going on. Like what the hell are you doing with your life? Um, I can only imagine the cognitive distance and how uncomfortable that would feel. Yes. Yes. So then you start using even more to numb that because I can't handle that guilt and, and that contradiction. So you can see where this starts to become a shitstorm, right? Um, 
and probably rather quickly. Yes, yes, it did too. Like we're probably in a matter, you know, this whole thing probably took maybe about like two years. It, it did two years doesn't seem like a lot, but it but it is. So, you know, yeah, you got this shitstorm brewing rather quickly. And I started getting involved with um this person and he was originally my drug dealer. So I was buying cocaine off of him and he was very discreet. That's why I liked him because remember, I'm a therapist. I can't have my shit all over the place. Like people can't know what I'm doing. So he was very discreet, but he also was extremely empathetic also. So I, it became a daily ritual. I would, now I'm graduated with my master's working on my license. So I'm only working at this point and doing supervision. I have Aiden, my son. So it became a daily ritual where I would get off work and I would go to his house. He lives up in the mountains. So you know, I'd go to his house and we would sit there and use for a little while. Like, you know, like it, it was like, you know, people sit around drinking coffee. We were just sitting around snorting lines and having wow. conversations, mm-hmm. you know, sit there and talk. And I was able to start telling him my story. I started building a narrative with this person and we grew very, very close. But, but there's always a but. Um, it was in 2019. 2019, this whole thing came to a screeching halt um, because I went from using, you know, little bits at a time every day to this cocaine addiction grew massively in the end to where I was going through a quarter ounce every one to two days, trying to sell it and keep up with it financially, keeping up with my bills. You you can't do that. It's not sustainable. So in the end, when I came down from this, we're coming down from a 10 to 15 year addiction. You have all these these repressed trauma memories this intense but eye-opening relationship. I was on the verge of losing my house, my car. I was losing my job um, and potentially my son because now people are noticing. It's noticeable. I'm not even hiding it at this point. You walk in my house and there's a pile of cocaine sitting on the counter. Like it's not, I'm not hiding it at this point. And all of this, it's like a cup, envision or a pressure cooker and envision like a pressure cooker building and building and building. And finally, all that pressure just explodes. It pops its top, it's out, there's no putting it back in. And and it did all tip over eventually. And all of that shit just came rushing out. There was no putting it back. And it did cause me to go on like a four day bender where I was just drinking massive amounts of alcohol, snorting massive amounts of cocaine. It caused me to pass out for two days. I woke up and I kind of walked out to my kitchen and it was daylight, like the middle of the day. 
And I remember I just fell to my knees. Like the weight of everything, it literally brought me to my knees. And the thought that just kept going through my head was all of this because I don't feel loved, because I don't feel worthy. (laughs) I just went through all of that shit because I'm not loved. Or I don't feel. Wow. wow. And at that moment, that experience of being physically brought to mm-hmm. your knees. I mean, what was that like? Well, I don't, I don't even know how to put it into words. Like I just remember sitting on my knees and my, like I had my face in my hands and I was just bawling like so uncontrollably and just like heaving. I just remember just heaving with the sobs Mm. just because and and then it wraps it always wraps back around to my mother and my father all of this because those two people couldn't love a child the way that that child needed mm. Mm. and yeah. did you feel that message come through did it feel like it was from higher power did it feel like it was a realization within like what where do you think oh, it yeah. came from I credit that as my first spiritual awakening for sure um that's exactly what that was and I just remember sitting there thinking that and this is more towards my father but I just remember sitting there thinking like this drug dealer that you're involved in has shown you more love in your life. Whatever twisted love that was has shown you more love than your own father could. And no wonder you feel so unworthy and unloved, but that is not your fault. That's not your fault. That's on your dad. Like a shame on him, (laughs) you know? Mm -hmm. Why couldn't mm-hmm. you love that child? Mm-hmm. But and that and that has taken and that's something that I'm still currently working through. You know, mm-hmm. I feel like with yeah. my mom, I feel like I've worked through a lot of, you know, the stuff with my mom. But my dad is still very much. I don't say unresolved, but yeah, it's still unresolved, and I'm still working through it. Yeah. Yeah. And to hold space for both of those things, right? Yeah. Like there, I, I am both healed and healing, you know, and that moment, that spiritual awakening, that feeling of insight, maybe that outside to seeing the world differently now, where has that led you? What has your journey been like since that moment? Man, so I feel like it's another whirlwind, like, and I feel like I'm getting to the point in my life now where I am so tired of, of being in these whirlwinds that, like, 
like right now in this current moment, I am learning to slow down and just live presently, to live mindfully and to get, it doesn't have to be a whirlwind. Like get yourself out of survival mode and enjoy your life and what you have built for yourself. You know, that's kind of where I'm at right now. But immediately following that spiritual awakening, that was back in 2019, um, there were two things happening after that awakening. So again, like we're coming off of a 10, 15 year um, addiction here and a massive cocaine addiction. So I'm going to be honest, physically, I was depleted. Um, and, and I never want to feel thankful for a world pandemic. But in that moment, it's really COVID-19 and, and the world shutting down for however, for however many months it did. Um, it, it did give me the time I needed to detox physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Um, I was able, you know, that was one of the reasons why I was struggling really hard with stopping these substances because I was always either in school, work, mom, I was always in some type of like work mode. And I was always so fearful of taking time off because I'm a therapist. What are they going to think of me? You know, what, what am I going to do with Aiden? So I never had the time to like fully detox myself. I never took that time. So when COVID-19 happened, I feel like it gave me the time to detox and to just sleep and rest. And simultaneously, I also had um, these group of women called The Village, which was started by Becca Corvin and um, Kate, um, I always butcher her last name, Kate Migyanko. Well, now she's married, so that's not even her last name anymore, but The Village. Um, I got involved with this group called The Village. And finally, oh my God, I can't even describe to you the relief I felt with this, but it was like, finally, I found a group of people who understand me and make me feel like I, I belong. I belong. I feel like I'm a part of something. I feel heard and loved and supported. Um, it really was the stepping stones to the community that we now have and my spirituality. Without the village, we would not have Serenity Hill Counseling and Wellness. So it was a really big part of my life that was very much needed. And you use the word relief there. And it sounds to me that that was the first alternative relief that you found through that spiritual community oh, instead yeah. of the alcohol or instead of the pills or the cocaine or, you know, it's like, you can always cover it with something else. If it's not this, it could be something else, but this was the first time. This was the first time you felt that in something bigger than you. Yes. That makes me emotional too, but in such a different way. Like I just feel so much joy when I hear that. 
you know, like, yes, yeah, something bigger than myself, something that finally makes sense, something that finally feels good, that is not a substance. Um, I finally feel that connection and that belonging that I have been searching for my entire life. I'm finally a part of a community that, that is healthy and good. And yes, bigger than myself. Yes. And I think it's important to note that you found that, mm-hmm. right? But not everybody has. Right. And, you know, it's so easy, I think, to look at people who struggle with addiction and it's like, well, why not? Not everybody has that, right? Like not everybody has that other thing that brings them that relief. And if anything, that just makes me want to open my heart more to that person. Um, Yeah. So it's like, I have, I'm looking at it right now. I'm looking at this piece of paper that is titled my recovery. And I have listed everything that has helped me in my recovery, you know, things like journaling, breathing, uh, meditation, mindfulness, mountains, being in the fresh air. Like I have this list, but at the heart of it, what has truly allowed me to recover and stay sober and maintain my sobriety is the community, the connection. That has been the missing piece for me this entire time. That love, that worthiness, and feeling like I am finally a part of something. I am not in this alone. My whole life, mm-hmm. I've been told you got to be independent. You got to make it on your own. No, I don't. I, I can have community. It's okay to rely on other people. And, and I can feel connected and like I belong somewhere and with someone, including spirit, the universe, something. Yes. And to see the value in both, right? Like there are parts of you where you look back and you might say like my ability to run a business, to be entrepreneurial, to be my, like maybe some of that comes from some of that independence. And, but again, there's high and low vibration expression to all of it. Right. And it's, and it's low expression. That amount of independence feels like loneliness, isolation, um, you know, there's, there's the shadow and the light to all of it. And I think like with community, I have been, I, I, I don't think that I could be where I'm at today if it hadn't been for the people that I've met through community. And I've been part of the, the synergy. I felt what happens when people come together and, and talk about these things and how, every person in the group is a little bit different after they leave and to be part of something like that is so powerful and really what spirituality is all about because that's what spirituality is that sense of connectedness to other people to something bigger than yourself to nature all of that yes and I'm like I feel like I'm finally at a point in my life where I'm no longer independent because I have to be I'm independent because I choose to be. There's a big difference in there. Um, I'm no longer just surviving. Like I am being more intentional. I am making choices 
you know, because I want to make these choices. And that feels really good too, you know, not to be just constantly surviving at the edge of my seat, gritting my teeth constantly. Um, and, you know, I really, you know, Serenity Hill was born out of that, you know, that spiritual awakening, that addiction, that childhood trauma, um, all of that is a part of Serenity Hill. Like I am on this journey and I am grateful to be on this journey. Without that, I wouldn't be where I'm at today, you know? And I think I feel like I'm moving away from being angry and I'm moving more into acceptance and, and gratitude. I am still angry, I'm like, you know, there's still parts of it that I'm not perfect, but I have more gratitude and acceptance in my heart now that I am on this journey for a reason. There is something bigger than me pulling, you know, guiding me and providing me this wisdom and Serenity Hill would not be here without it. Yes. Yes. And it is cyclical, right? That's the point of this podcast is this is nonlinear. It's going to go up. It's going to go down. You're going to cycle back. But at the end of the day, if you just keep showing up and, and doing the work and going to the community events and, you know, doing the practices that help us heal, then we are going to trend up. We are going to find relief over time. And I, I love how you said, you know, serenity hill was born out of this like out of this darkness came light i've heard it said that as service providers or really like public servants really at the end of the day is what therapists and social workers and people like that are like but oftentimes we create the support that we wish we had yes earlier in our journey that we shape our services around what we wish we knew and what we wish we had. Yes, I definitely agree with that. And I feel like with Serenity Hill, I am pretty, um, I'm very intentional with the events that we do and that we provide um, because of that. Like, and not, not to make it like all about me, but I just know coming from the trauma that I have in my childhood and coming from this addiction, um, I don't want to just like provide an event just because, you know, I, I don't want to just fill the calendar. I don't want to just check boxes off. You know, I want to be able to provide events that I truly feel is what our community needs and what, what's going to help people along on their journey. And for me and, and Serenity Hill, it's all about connection and a sense of belonging because no matter what healing journey you're on, no matter what journey you're on for yourself, at the heart of it, trauma, pain, whatever, you have to have community and a sense of belonging to help you heal in this journey. You know, as people, as humans, our brains are hardwired to, to thrive on community and connection. You know, it's a part of who we are at the core. You know, we're connected to the universe, to our bodies, to our minds, and to the people around us. So 
with Serenity Hill, that's, that's what it's all about. The connection, the sense of belonging and utilizing that, tapping into it to help people on their healing journeys, to give them what they need to be able to make it. And you can sense that. You can feel that when you walk in there, the way that you're met, the energy. It's, it's one that's inclusive and, and empathetic. And I'm so grateful to be part of the team at Serenity as well. And to know how it came about just makes me even more proud to be standing along there with you. So for the listeners, I would love if you could just kind of explicitly list some of the tools that have helped you along your healing journey that you could recommend to others. Yeah. So there's a couple, um, and this is kind of like in addition to the community and connection, um, Number one is honestly like professional help. Um, I really had to humble myself and, you know, admit that I cannot do this by myself, that I did need professional help from a counselor and a psychiatrist. That's number one. Um, Number two is sleep. Um, That's very important, getting enough sleep and adequate sleep for your body and your mind to function. Ooh, another big one is meditating and mindfulness. Um, hmm, what else? Oh, healthy foods and, and water, getting enough movement in the day, whether it's just stretching, yoga, maybe taking a walk. Um, journaling, that's huge for me. Um, my brain is always swirling with different thoughts and I have to get them out of my head or else I'll go crazy. So journaling, deep breathing, and I would say the last one is Reiki. Um, I do a lot of Reiki and different energy healing. I love the PMEF mat that you have as well at the studio. That thing is pretty awesome. Is that, is that like Reiki related? It can be. Yes. So I do use it in combination with Reiki a lot. So if I'm doing Reiki, nine out of 10 chances, you're going to be laying on the PEMF mat. Um, PEMF stands for pulse electromagnetic frequencies. And it also gives off negative ions. And I feel like there's another one, negative ions, PEMF. Oh, and far infrared therapy also. So basically what it's doing is it's helping to heal you on a cellular level. Um, It's helping heal like your cells. It's helping to cleanse and balance and clear your energy body. Um, And it also has 10 pounds worth of crystals sewn into it that align with the chakras. So you're also getting chakra balancing and healing with it. Um, and it heats up to about, we keep it at around 140 degrees. So it just feels good to even lay on it because of that warmth. It gives you that warm, fuzzy feeling. So I always say it's heaven in a mat. Truly. You got to try it. And, and you combo that with the Reiki. Is that yeah. right? Yes. Oh, 
I'm going to need one of those here soon. <laughs> that sounds like Kevin. It is. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that these are some really incredible tools that I know our listeners can take with them. Um, I stress sleep as well. I know mm -hmm. that I can, I cannot show up as my best self <laughs> if I am not getting at least like seven and a half, eight hours of sleep. It's hard for life to be good if sleep is crap. <laughs> yeah. I always put that at the top of my list because it, it is, it's so needed. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the meditation. So what's your preference when it comes to meditation? So meditation, first off, I always tell everybody, do not try to clear your mind because if you're anything like I am, it's impossible. Like your mind is always constantly inputting information from your environment, your mind and your body. So it's virtually impossible to turn the mind off. With meditation, I combined it with mindfulness. So I usually just get myself in a comfortable position and I just start bringing awareness to the breath. Um, and I try really hard to focus on everything about the breath. What does it feel going in? What does it feel like coming out? What does it feel like when your lungs expand? And if you can focus on that and learn to channel your thoughts, not dampen them, if you can learn to channel it, then it, it, puts, it puts me in a deeper meditative state. So channel the thoughts to your breath and really bringing focus on what does it feel like? Um, what else? Oh, and body and scanning. Body scanning is a big part of it too. So once you bring that awareness to the breath, then start at the top and work your way down and start bringing awareness to the body. Where do I feel tension, stress? Do I feel anything at all? And that way it does help to um, lessen the chatter, the mental chatter. Mm -hmm. And do you prefer guided or do you prefer just like nature sounds? What's your preference with that? I think in the beginning, when I was first learning to do it, it was easier to do guided, um, just to help teach me kind of how to do it and to help develop my own practice. But now that I don't need that medium so much anymore. Now I feel like I prefer, like, I really like the um, frequencies tuning into different, and you can find them on YouTube or Spotify, but, um, and I do tend to prefer the lower frequencies, like the grounding and the lower sounding frequencies. Interesting. I'm going to have to play around with that a little bit. Yes. Yeah. You can definitely search them on YouTube and Spotify. Awesome. Well, Elena, do you have any last words of wisdom to somebody who might still be in the hard part or anything that you might tell them if they're struggling today? Mm -hmm. I feel like two things come to mind with that. And the first one is you know, the hard parts, they seem like they're going to go on forever. But if you keep on your journey and you keep trying to put one foot in front of the other, life is not just about the hard parts. There are good parts to it too. 
So I guess one thing is I'm going to tell you to hang in there. The bad parts, they can, they're temporary. Keep putting one foot in front of the other and, and you're going to make it. And the second one is try to find the joy. You know, I feel like life is, life is life. I say that all the time. Life is life, but please do not forget to feel the joy. Yes, yes. I always tell my clients, you can always find your sliver of joy in every day, even if it is a pit, maybe in the grand scheme of things, it might be a low point, but there's still that sliver of joy hiding there somewhere. Yes. Joy and gratitude. Seriously. They have really, since I've been on this spiritual journey, they have dug me out of some really dark holes. So joy and gratitude. Yes. Orienting toward the light, the joy, all of that. Yes. Well, Elena, I am so grateful that you chose to share your story today. I know that I found it inspiring and I know my audience will as well. If they want to continue to follow you on your healing journey, where can they find you and how can they work with you? Mm, Facebook is a big avenue. Um, You can search me by, I think, my personal Facebook is Elena Violet Breakiron, and then you can always find us on Serenity Hill Counseling and Wellness. And also, I started diving into TikTok, so you can find me on TikTok too, SHCW. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story of nonlinear healing. We are so honored and blessed to have you join us today, and we'll see you next time. Yeah. Thank you, Courtney. I'm grateful to have you in my life as well. So I look forward to doing this again with you. Wow, everybody. I hope that you were moved by that interview. I know that I was. It was a very emotional interview. And I think that that's a very beautiful thing. I think that if we're genuine and authentic, that actually can be a really good sign. That processing emotion in the moment means that we feel safe enough to do that. So I am so grateful that Alina shared her story with us. I have to echo that community and connection are such an important aspect to healing. As I've said probably at least a dozen times so far on the podcast. But yes, it all stems from that. I like how a lot of the advice that she gave was around wellness and physical health and well-being. Our body is at the basis, it is the foundation of our full expression of self. Maslow's hierarchy of needs teaches us that our body, our physical safety, our health, it is the basis of full self-expression. So things like getting enough sleep, eating fresh foods, moving your body, all of that is incredibly important. I love the energy work as well. Energetics are real. (laughs) They're in the process of showing it by proving, um, you know, that energy exists. But hey, you know what? For a long time, they thought that germs didn't exist because they couldn't see them either. And it just turns out that we couldn't measure it at the time. So I do believe that things like Reiki and, you know, energetic work is very powerful and 
you just have to experience it to believe it. That's all I have to say about that. Um, so thank you all for joining us this week on the Nonlinear Healing Podcast. Make sure you tune in next time for our last episode of this segment of this season. So we're going to break for the holidays and then we'll be back in March. But make sure you tune in because I have a very special episode with a dear friend of mine. So I hope to see you then. In the meantime, take care of you. Focus on your health and well-being. There are weird energies and these are intense times. So ground in, center yourself. You've got this. And we'll see you next time on Nonlinear Healing with Courtney Brooke.